This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Jeff Voigt. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Voigt, Principal of Medical Device Consultants at Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to evaluating the clinical and cost-effectiveness of medical technologies. I publish frequently on this topic in the peer-reviewed medical literature. I'm also an editor of one of the leading peer-reviewed cost-effectiveness journals. Lastly, I'm a 1985 graduate of the Wharton Healthcare Management Program. Today, we'll be discussing the recently passed Chronic Care Act, which is part of the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018. Within the Chronic Care Act are provisions in caring for dual eligibles, meaning Medicare and Medicaid eligible, for those with multiple chronic conditions, such as diabetes and heart failure, also called the special needs population. This population, which totals approximately 11 million people, or about 3% of the population, consumes over $350 billion per year in medical expenses, or about $31,800 per person. This is also approximately 10% of the total health care spend in the U.S. annually. To put this in perspective, the average yearly health care expenditures in the U.S. per person are approximately 10500 Therefore, the special needs population is three times more costly than what the average person in the U.S. Uh, spends. The recent legislation that passed permanent uh, that passed permanently auth- uh, that recently passed authorizes Medicare Advantage dual eligible special needs plans to care for this population. This new law also loosens the definition of primary health related benefits and provides for additional supplemental benefits that have a reasonable expectation of improving or maintaining the health or function of a chronically kill a uh, chronically ill enrollee. Embedded in these plans are supplemental benefits, which are not direct medical expenses, but which affect the health of patients and can include nutrition, transportation, housing, clothing, their neighborhood, and social support mechanisms. These types of expenditures can uh, be described as social determinants of health. I have four guests today with me to discuss dual eligible special needs plans and their effect on this population in future directions, and possibly the application of non-medical coverage for health, such as social determinants, to the general population. The first half hour, we'll be dealing with the policy around special needs populations, and we'll talk with a vendor addressing one of the social determinants of health. My guests, Cheryl Phillips, MD. Dr. Phillips is the president and CEO of the Special Needs Plan Plans Alliance, a national leadership association for special needs and Medicare Medicaid plans serving vulnerable popu- uh, populations and adults. Dr. Phillips is a past president of the American Geriatric Society, an organization representing healthcare professionals committed to improving the health of America's seniors, and is also a past president of the American Medical Directors Association, a physician organization for long term care. Dr. Phillips serves on multiple technical advisory boards for chronic care, nursing home quality, and home and community-based services, and has provided multiple testimonies to the U.S. Congress. My second guest, Catherine McPherson, is Vice President of Product Strategy and Development and Chief Nutrition Officer for Mom's Meals Nourish Care, Pure Foods LLC. 
Previously, Catherine was Vice President of Medication Adherence and Immunizations at Walgreens, led healthcare product strategy at WebMD, and managed health and wellness programs for Ceridian, the National Institutes of Health, and the American Institute for Cancer Research. Catherine is also a registered dietitian. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Okay, so let's let's get into the kind of the meat and the matter here. Um, Dr. Phillips, tell me a little bit about the Special Needs Alliance and what are you doing? Thank you. Yes, I'd love to. So the Special Needs Plan Alliance is a national leadership organization. We're a nonprofit, a 501c6, representing um, specialized managed care plans, which include the three types of special needs plans that you made reference to. And we'll talk mainly about those special needs plans for the duly eligible individuals. But there's also special needs plans for individuals with serious life-threatening chronic conditions known as C-SNPs. And there's also an institutional level of care or I-SNP for those that are nursing home level of care. And then we also have as members some of the demonstration programs that are looking at Medicare, Medicaid integration, and there's some 10 states around the country that are participating in these demonstrations. So that is the Special Needs Plan Alliance, and we have a mission and a focus to improve care through policy, regulation, and system delivery change for uh, the most vulnerable, high-risk, high-cost populations. And that's, in essence, what the special needs plans are targeting. Got it. And so uh, if, you, if you add up all the, let's call it the C-SNP, the D-SNP, and the I-SNP, how many, how many people is that t- in total? So there are about 2.5 million enrolled in all three SNPs, special needs plan types together. Mm-hmm. And our alliance, our members represent over 1.6 million enrolled lives. We uh, call them beneficiaries or enrollees, but I think for the purpose of this call, let's just call them people. Okay, sounds good. And Catherine, tell me a little bit about Pure Foods and what its mission is and how, how you're involved in, in this uh, dual eligible um, uh, situation. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, Pure Foods is a private company. We're headquartered uh, just outside of Des Moines, Iowa. We do business as Mom's Meals Nourish Care. Uh, we've been in business for almost 20 years now, and we are, our mission is to be the leading healthcare provider of home-delivered nutrition solutions that nourish health and preserve independence. Mm-hmm. And we do that primarily through three program types. So we have long-term care support where we deliver our meals to enable uh, individuals to age in place in their communities, live at home uh, for as long as possible. Um, but and, and we've done that for, for most of our 20-year history. Um, most recently, in the past five years, we've supported uh, our health plan partners around um, caring for their members after discharge. So we have post-discharge meals. And then most recently, chronic care meals. So uh, those are, you know, some of the um, new programs that we have in place with uh, some, some of our DSNIT partners. Um, and just, you know, uh, our meals, to, to mention, they are uh, fully prepared, so members don't have to shop, cook, um, prepare anything. And they are refrigerated, not frozen, and they are condition-specific. So we have meals for individuals who need um, support for their diabetes, 
heart-friendly meals, lower sodium if they have heart failure, uh, renal if they have end-stage renal disease, pureed, um, gluten-free, they have celiac. So um, meals that are appropriate for caring for individuals, uh, no matter what their uh, serious condition. Right. So how do you how do you uh, find these people? You're connected, obviously, with various health plans. Is that right? Right. Okay, and um, and so you'll, you're part of the coordination of care once they're discharged from an institution and, and they want to stay in the home. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So it's you know the the mechanism by which the referral for a meals program, um, you know, changes. It, it, it's based on you know the kind of how the benefit gets operationalized at that health plan. Um, so it could be through case management. It could be through um, you know a list of of members who are discharging. Um, but, but typically, it's, it's through case management. Right. And uh, okay. So, so how do you market yourself? Um, so you know, we um, we work extensively on uh, communication with um, you know uh, health plans. So mm-hmm. we work through uh, you know um, various conferences and national organizations like AHEP, um, MHPA. Um, you know, to, to reach uh, the audiences that, that might be in need of our services. And, and we also do a lot of just direct networking with, with health plans. Um, so in addition to health plans, you know, we, we also work with, um, on the aging side, um, you know, area agencies on aging and um, directly with states as well. Yeah, and, and just one last question, and I'm going to get back mm-hmm. to Cheryl. Um, so um, What's the what's the um, what are the growth drivers for you from a from a business standpoint? Where are you finding a lot of the the, the business? Sure, I, I think number one is you know the aging of the population. Mm-hmm. So um, you know silver tsunami, uh, you know taking care of of aging adults. So that plays right into the uh, Medicare Advantage population. Um, you know that that is really growing. Um, so that's number one. But then, um, you know, if you think about health care in general, and, and we do support plans both on the Medicaid and the Medicare Advantage side, where we see the most growth right now is on the Medicare Advantage side. Um, so, you know, because of the policy changes we'll, we'll talk about today as part of the Chronic Care Act, and as well as uh, new changes in the CMS call letter uh, for 2019, you know, increased flexibility there as well. Um, around, you know, targeting benefits for members with chronic conditions and also, you know, broadening the definition of what a supplemental benefit is. We're really seeing um, a lot of desire for innovation on the Medicare Advantage side, and that is to, you know, ensure that um, the right supports are there for members, um, but also that costs are controlled as, you know, sort of the the membership really does grow uh, in the future. Right. So, Cheryl, Tell me about the Chronic Care Act and, and why is it so important, and, and is this something that is uh, transformative in, in your mind? believe it's transformative. And I'll focus on, so the Chronic Care Act is a very broad act with a number of elements. Things that for us in the special needs plans is it gave permanency with um, conditions. So plans don't just get a um, ticket to ride, if you will, indefinitely. But it gave a pathway for permanency, and why that matters is that for this population of dually eligibles that requires both the health plan and Medicare, Medicaid, or CMS, and the states to contract, when they had authorizations for just two or three years at a time, not Mm -hmm. much got done. Mm -hmm. Now there's a pathway for permanency that in and of itself is so significant because that now allows states. CMS and the health plans 
to think in a longitudinal way to integrate Medicare and Medicaid for these vulnerable populations in very specific ways. Right. Um, so give me a, give me a, a typical, um, let's just deal with the, the dual eligible uh, sure. SNPs. And, what, 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 tell me a little bit about them and, and, and what their lifestyle's like and, and what, what kind of things are, are, are we doing to help them? So um, I think the very most important thing is to say there is not a typical duly eligible individual. Hmm. Sometimes we call them duals, which I think is a little bit pejorative because people don't identify themselves as duly eligible. But there's two, I think, big bucket categories that we need to think about. The younger person who's disabled and thus has Medicare because of disability and Medicaid because of poverty. Mm-hmm. And the elder, frail elder, often with three or more chronic conditions, over half of our duly eligibles have three or more serious chronic conditions. So this, these are sort of two bivariate populations. But what becomes some common themes throughout, the younger disabled population does have typically a higher burden of behavioral health needs. Mm-hmm. So one of the important issues is how do we integrate in behavioral health. But we touched on the social determinants, and I absolutely agree with Catherine. The social determinants become a common denominator of the duly eligible population because, remember, they are either um, medically needy and they are of low income to qualify for Medicaid. So access to stable housing access to reliable nutrition, ability to manage transportation. If you have three or four multiple chronic conditions, and I, as a doctor, keep sending you appointment reminders, it doesn't do you diddly squat if you can't get out of your apartment and can't get to the appointment. Is that a medical term, by the way, diddly squat? Diddly squat, yes. yes. It's it's an ICD-10 code now. It is. It's great. But but you get the point that... um, We can, you know, give lists of meds, we can give lots of instructions, but if we aren't addressing those core basic needs of people's ability to function in where they live, then the medical stuff gets lost, and what becomes the default, whether it's poor nutrition, limited access with transportation, inadequate housing, if you are seriously ill, the place where you do get all of that is in the emergency room in the hospital. And that doesn't serve the person well, and it's very expensive for our health care system. Yeah, so, so when, yeah, okay, uh, thank you. Um, so help me understand how you end up identifying all of these social determinant needs. I mean, it, there's got to be some, the case, is it the case manager who's kind of the lead on this? Is that right? So one, yeah, so one of the things that's unique about a special needs plan is you must have care coordinators and case managers working directly with the individual because you don't get to the heart of these without um, understanding the person. Even mail-out surveys or phone calls often don't get to the heart of it because either you can't find people or they don't answer or they really don't want to tell you things because they don't know what you're going to do with the information. So um, special needs plans have the ability through the case manager or care coordinator to really get to know individuals and understand and thus start to track their social determinants of health needs. That's the big word for all of these things that make life work. Got it. So I'm Jeff Floyd, and you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. Today we're talking about the dual-eligible population or special needs population, which accounts for over $350 billion a year 
in annual spending. My guests, Dr. Cheryl Phillips, CEO of the Special Needs Alliance, and Catherine McPherson, VP of Pro- Product Strategy at Pure Foods. Oh, am I saying that right, Catherine? Pure Foods? Is that right? Pure Foods. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sounds right. sounds Thanks, good. <laughs> so um, let's, let's go back. I, I know um, there are private insurers that are kind of managing the Medicare Advantage uh, aspect of this. But are private plans actually tipping their toe into the water on this as well with some of their enrollees? Are you seeing that at all? Well, we may be, and Catherine made reference to the new supplemental benefits. So for the first time, we're now able to, through Medicare Advantage plans, add on benefits. And I think that some of um, these Medicaid Advantage plans may start looking at are there supplemental benefits like medically related transportation Uh or medically related nutrition, um, something that Catherine was sharing with us. I think the challenge we have yet to see because this just came out from CMS and plans are in the process of submitting their bids, their estimates of costs for the next year. Are these really going to be substantially targeted to um, high-risk, vulnerable populations, or are they going to be more marketing kind of tools? Hmm. I'm delighted mm-hmm. with supplemental benefits. The flexibility is essential. I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The difference between a general MA Medicaid or Medicare Advantage plan and a special needs plan is that a special needs plan has a targeted high-risk, vulnerable population by its very enrollment, right. whereas a general MA plan may not. So how these supplemental benefits are going to be used is yet to be seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to, and, and, and I'm going to ask you guys, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, so you have the medical side and then you have the social determinant side. What do you think the mix is from a spend standpoint for those two buckets in, in general? Uh, Catherine, you got a guess? Um, well, if you if you look at the CMS uh, call letter, the language actually says that um, the new supplemental benefits cannot be for social needs alone. So, you know, there really is this mix mm-hmm. of uh, medical need plus social need, and, and that is a requirement. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think when you think about something like like food, um, that hasn't traditionally been looked at in the past as medical spend. But, uh, you know, with the strong evidence base that's been growing around the impact that nutrition can have on um, clinical outcomes, um, as well as, you know, cost of care, reducing readmissions, improving hemoglobin A1C for those with uncontrolled diabetes, et cetera. With that evidence base, uh, you know, the acceptance is really growing that this should be part of everyone's integrated plan of care. Right. Nutrition and, should be a component. Yeah. And Cheryl, do you have a guess as to what, what the, kind of the mix is? My thinking is it's probably going to be, as time goes on, pretty pretty skewed towards social, social Well, potentially, and that's one of the concerns that the states have. So I'm going to answer it hmm. a little bit more vaguely. Part of the problem is you can't compare Medicaid costs because they vary from state to state per um, per enrollee or by population because eligibility is different and covered benefits are different. Right. And one of the frustrations that the states have, right now um, medical cost spending is definitely shifted into the Medicare side for lots of reasons, both good and bad. Uh-huh. And as states spend more money on social determinants, the Medicare costs go down, but the states are saying, um, excuse me, <laughs> Um, you know, we just put in all this infrastructure and support, 
So the, the goal of the integrated plans is how do you look at um, probably the best example is a model of care called PACE, Program of All-Inclusive Care of the Elderly. And in that case, they get both the Medicare and the Medicaid dollars, and they do the full scope of care, including in-home personalized care, nutrition, meals, transportation, mm-hmm. all such things, and all the medical costs. And they spend end up spending more on the Medicaid side, but they offset the Medicare costs, but then they get to use those Medicare costs for care. So the hmm. states are saying, wow, we want to shift Medicaid to home and community-based services because we know that institutional care or nursing home care is expensive, and there's some people who don't need to be there. But how much money do the states put in to offset the uh, Medicare costs? And that's part of the attraction of this alignment of Medicare and Medicaid under managed care. So uh, I just make sure I'm, I'm clear on this. Is So the, some of the states are getting some of the Medicare dollars back to help them with Medicaid based on the only low Only under a PACE model, only, only under, under a very pace. select model. And, yeah, and, and, right? how, and how big is that population? That population is probably a, just under 60,000 enrollees in the whole country. Right. So it started in San Francisco was on lock. Um, I was a chief medical officer there. It's now replicated in 39 states, but it's relatively small, and there's a whole set of reasons why it is. But that's probably the best example of integrated financing. And so when you say, you know, who spends more on what and who's saving money, it really comes down to whose wallet are you dipping into and mm-hmm. whose um, bank account are you saving for. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about the integration of Medicare and Medicaid. You talked about the financial side, but what what other issues are there as it relates to the integration of both of these programs? Um, and Catherine, from your side, help, help me understand that, and then Cheryl, please weigh in. You bet. Sure. So, so where there is not integration, so for example, we do partner with some health plans where you know we have programs available for their members on both the Medicaid and the Medicare Advantage side. And so we start by helping you know, the plan um, plans members to understand what benefits are available under which plan. Um, let's take the example of someone who is receiving um, long-term services and support, so they're getting meals delivered to their home to help them, you know, avoid uh, institutionalization. And uh, they do experience uh, an inpatient uh, admission. Uh, you know, if they are duly eligible, they are discharged, and they may be eligible for um, meals after discharge. Uh, and so those meals are being paid for on the Medicare Advantage side. And so, you know, being a vendor on both sides, um, we have one, uh, you know, patient record or member record for, for each of our clients. And um, we're able to, you know, p- put a pause on their long-term meals and, uh, you know, then we're, we're going to claims bill for, for the meals on the, the Medicare Advantage side. Um, and then, you know, after those meals are, are complete and the, the benefit is, is used, um, then we're going to transfer back over to the long-term side. So we also help our health plans to um, sometimes, uh, you know, we're working with completely different teams uh, within a health plan on the Medicaid and the Medicare side. So we bring those teams together. Um, we like to train all the case managers as well um, to help them. You know, under there may be different sets of case managers um, caring for members. So we like to try and also, um, you know, bring teams together that, that may not know about the benefit that's available on the other side. So, right. um, so that's, that's a role that we can play as so, a partner. So so you have, uh, I don't know, if the nutritionists that are out there or salespeople that are, I mean, part of the, it sounds like a big part of what they have to do is to educate uh, the plans on what your offering is and, and, and how it can benefit them. Is that is that right? 
Uh, you know, so we have account managers who are going to go in and work with case management to make, yep. you know, because having the benefit is one thing, right? And and you can have your, your folks who are on the product side uh, designing the benefit and your actuaries deciding what the utilization is going to be. But operationally, uh, operationalizing that benefit is, you know, kind of that next step to make it um, meaningful and, you know, um, Dr. Phillips, you made the comment, you know, is it going to be more of a marketing play or is this something that's really going to have an impact for members? And, you know, that difference comes in, did you operationalize this? Is it integrated into your clinical workflow? Does it become part of your integrated plan of care for your members? And, and case management is really where that happens. So we do work with, through our account management team um, to identify how to, you know, integrate a meal's um, benefit into what, uh, you know, those case managers are already doing with members from the assessment, you know, to the checklist, um, you know, to, to the reporting and the, and the benchmarks and metrics that the case management team is, is trying to meet. Yeah, so, Catherine, real quickly, um, how do you measure the success? I mean, you're looking at benchmarks. What are, the, what are those benchmarks? Help us understand a little bit about that as to whether you're being successful or not. Sure. So, um, you know, we work with health plans on what they are trying to achieve as their partner. So we provide data typically on, you know, utilization, but we're also, um, you know, working with that plan to measure things like um, customer set or member satisfaction, net promoter score. Um, it could be a quality measure that the health plan is trying to put into place. So uh, DSNPs are required to have a, a QIP or quality improvement program. Um, that may be around something like readmissions reduction. And so we're able to, you know, provide data back to the plan um, mm-hmm. on their members who received meals, and then they're able to look at claims um, and, and need to determine what the reduction in, in um, readmission was. And sometimes we do that analysis on behalf of our health plan partners as well. So it's really driven by, you know, what that plan is trying to achieve and um you know, we're, we're able to collaborate on a lot of different metrics. So, Cheryl, I'm going to give you the last couple of minutes here. Um, sure. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the, uh, the challenges in integrating Medicare and Medicaid. You talked on the financial side. But what are the things that you're seeing that are a challenge, but, you know, you're, you're starting to address and you're seeing some successes? So, um, so multiple challenges and um I would say it starts with aligned enrollment. If you are a beneficiary who has Medicare and Medicaid, you have two separate plans. You have two separate cards. You have two separate enrollment times. You have two separate sets of benefits. You may have two separate care coordination teams. Hmm. Um, you may have – so nothing it's, – it's even more than financial because to the beneficiary, without integration and without starting with aligned enrollment – you have a spider web of services and things that our people are doing, but they're not coordinating. As we are looking to moving along into this integration pathway, aligned enrollment is very important, aligned care coordination, aligned benefits, so that um, the Medicare and the Medicaid portions are understanding what the person needs, what they're getting, but more importantly, what they're not getting and they should be getting. And then how does that information flow between the medical and the social um, services and support side? So to me, that is the process of integration, and it starts with aligned enrollment. It also starts with um, state Medicaid departments and the health plans and the Medicare plans and the Medicaid plans all speaking together. So there's some alignment that needs to happen. But it's not always um, a shared savings or a financial alignment. Mm -hmm. It can be under some program models, 
but even just starting with aligned enrollment and information exchange so that ultimately it's needs driven by the person, not the set of benefits that the MA plan is doing and the set of benefits that the managed Medicaid plan is doing, but that they're looking at what does the person need. And frankly, when you're in fee-for-service for both, it's even less coordinated. So managed care sets a platform for integration, but then as we can start to move the plans together with aligned enrollment, aligned education materials, aligned grievance and appeals process, um, then we start to see what looks like integration to the person. Yeah, so it sounds to me like, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, getting the resources to communicate with each other, and it sounds like there's some overlap in this, and it sounds like there's certainly certainly efficiencies that can be had by um, making sure that people are communicating correctly, and, and uh, ultimately you're going to end up with a, 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 you know, a business model that, um, you know, you squeeze some of the costs out of it and um, um, ultimately is going to be successful. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Good. So the efficiencies are not insignificant. Yeah. Having access to a population with um, aligned enrollment makes it easier for the health plans as well. And then there become efficiencies for the state, for the Medicaid services, as well as on the uh, Medicare Advantage side. Very good. Thank you both very much for, for your time today. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.